Salam and welcome to the Claritas Books podcast with me, your host, Ramona Ali. Today's special author podcast centres on a man who you definitely cannot fit in a box. Professor Joel Haywood has wide-reaching expertise that covers multiple roles as an academic, a poet, a fiction writer and a sheikh. He is a strategy advisor who's held various academic leadership posts including one as the former Dean of the Royal Air Force College in the UK, as well as having been a tutor to Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge. Joel Haywood is currently Professor of Strategic Thought at the National Defence College of the UAE. He is also the author and editor of over 15 books and many articles on strategy and the ethics of war and conflict. Apart from unpacking Professor Haywood's fascinating life, we also look at his most recent work, The Leadership of Muhammad, a historical reconstruction, as well as his other fiction and poetry work published with Claritas. Professor Haywood now joins me live from Abu Dhabi in the UAE. Salam alaikum, Professor, and a welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. We're really looking forward to this podcast because you have such an eclectic background, even more than I've mentioned um, in the introduction. And before we even touch upon your books, it would be great to get a clearer image of the man behind the pages. So could we take a step back, even quite a few decades, to get a sense of your early life and your interests, perhaps even begin by you being born a Kiwi? Yeah, yeah, thank you. I I was born in New Zealand and raised and educated in New Zealand. And I I came from a a very average kind of working class family. Um, My dad had been a soldier and then was a printer. And as a boy, I liked to read. I was obsessive about reading. I read virtually every kind of hour that I could after school. Um, In those days, I mostly read history, almost entirely. I I kind of dressed up in clothes to to make me feel like I was a Viking or a Roman centurion. So it was always kind of inevitable that I would end up as a historian. I came from a family without any strong sense of kind of religious instruction. On my mother's side, there's a a Jewish background. And on my father's side, there's a Christian background. But we weren't pushed one way or the other. And we're told to make our own mind up whether we believed in God. And if so, uh, what confession we wanted to adopt. And for me, actually, I was always drawn to the Jewish part of my background and identified as a Jew and learned Hebrew and made trips to Israel and did all the things that young young Jews did. And I guess the thing that appealed to me about that side of my heritage was the kind of the nature of monotheism. It just never sat comfortably to hear the Christians saying that God was three when I could hear Jews say, no, God is one. And that seemed to have a kind of an easier logic for me. And so really until I was about 30, I guess that was my religious um, identification um, that 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 I was a, that I was Jewish. That's so fascinating. And actually, your gateway into Islam actually opened up in a in a tragic world event. Could you recount how that moment led you to change? Well, well, I, I guess it did. You know, before nine eleven, in the years before then, I'd done a lot of reading about the Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, and had come to kind of see that he he was indeed a prophet. 
which was a bit awkward for me, um, identifying as a Jew, and because, as you know, the Jews don't accept Jesus as a prophet. And, and so I went through a period of wondering where I was going to fit. About that same time, when I was going through this period of kind of intense questioning about my own faith, uh, 9-11 happened. And I remember it as if it was yesterday. I was at home and in New Zealand when my boss rang me. I, I was then working in a strategic study center, and my boss was a major general, the former head of the New Zealand Army. And he, he said, Joel, quick, turn on the TV. So I turned on the TV just after the first plane had hit the first of the Twin Towers and said to the general, oh, gosh, that's a bad accident. Because after all, planes had hit skyscrapers before, including the Empire State Building, as I knew. Just at that point, the second plane hit the second Twin Tower, and I knew that this was clearly deliberate and, and a terrorist attack. And my boss, still on the phone, said to me, those damn Muslims. And I was shocked by that because he was a decent man, certainly not a racist, and I'd never heard him say such a thing. And I challenged him on it and said, General, I've never heard you speak against Islam like this. You know, what could make you think this? There's no evidence, at least yet, that these are Muslims. And he said to me, no, Joel, it's it's in their book. And I said, what book? He said, the Quran. And I said, what's in the Quran? And he said, it's full of violence. They're an unbridled people. And I still remember him saying that as clearly as if it was yesterday. And I said, General, no religious book promotes violence. They all adhere to the golden rule, do unto others as you want done to you. There's, you know, the Quran doesn't say that, I'm sure. And he said, yes, it does. And I said, well, you haven't read it. And he shot back at me something that stung me as a scholar. He said, well, you haven't either. And I was bothered by that because I felt proud of myself that I was actually quite well read. I had a background in the classics. I'd, I'd never read the Quran, never actually held a copy in my hand. And, and so I was quite stung by his rebuke that I hadn't read it. And I was bothered by that as a, as a scholar, that I hadn't read a book that was followed by a quarter of the world. So that very day, I went to the local university bookshop at my university, and I bought a copy of the Quran and started reading it. And of course, the Quran's a very small book. It's only 77,000 words. It's very condensed. And I read it, I, I'm a quick reader, I read it very quickly. And of course, I was correct. There was no wanton violence in the Quran. Um, but it did speak about war, and it spoke a lot about war. And as a scholar of war, I was quite fascinated to see that the concepts of just war, of justice in the Quran, were essentially the same as the ones that I taught from a Western perspective. And so I thought, gosh, I must read this again, this time take some notes and, and look carefully at this from a kind of a scholarly point of view. So I started reading it a second time. And as I read it, I realized I was actually enjoying reading it. And I found it the most fascinating book because, of course, it had all the same prophets that I had grown up believing in and, and following the teachings of. But it had someone new that I knew nothing about, which was the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So perhaps a day or two later, I went back to the university bookshop and I bought Karen Armstrong's book, uh, Muhammad, a, a biography of the prophet. And in fact, it was the only book about Muhammad that the bookshop had. 
And I said, is it by a Muslim? And they said, well, I don't think so. The name Karen Armstrong, I suspect not. And that book, indeed, it's not by a Muslim. It's by a non-Muslim. It, it absolutely changed my life. It, it became evident that, that this man was indeed a prophet and was somebody of tremendous aptitude and capacity. So I was immensely impressed by that. And I guess that started my kind of journey towards Islam. It didn't happen overnight. I'm a, a kind of a cautious person. But over the next couple of years, I guess I, I read the Quran perhaps another 20 times and began to read everything I could on, on the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, until I kind of fell in love with this personality. And then, of course, that leads you to a dilemma because Hera was from a Jewish background, now believing in Jesus, now believing in Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon them all. What was I supposed to do? And so I, I guess at some point, intellectually, I made that decision that I would have to follow through on this and, and, uh, and, and embrace Islam. That is, that is extraordinary. And, and just picking up on what you said about uh, that kind of perhaps tension that might have been there, do you feel the need to separate your academic eye from your Islamic kind of scholarly eye, or, or is there a synthesis there? Yeah, that's perhaps the hardest part of my Islamic journey, I think, is trying to, to find that synthesis. I'm, you know, I'm undoubtedly a person of the brain and, and not really of the, of the heart. So I, I guess in that sense, some people wouldn't see me as terribly spiritual. But God gives us different traits and personalities for a reason. And when he asks things of us, he bases it on what he's given us. And in the New Testament, there's a phrase I like from the prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. And Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. And, and so I've thought about that a lot. God gave me a brain, an academic brain. And, and in, in a sense, that's what he wants me to, to use as my primary form of worship. And, and so I've sort of set my goal in a way in life to, to, to use my scholarly brain as a kind of ibadah, to, 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 as a kind of worship to serve him. And so I write only now on, on Islamic topics. And although I don't do it as a kind of an apologetic to somehow whitewash Islam of any of its historical weaknesses or faults or challenges as a community, um, I, I do enjoy the fact that I get to write things that might actually present a a balanced and, and clear and, and evidence-based image of, of our holy prophet, for example. Peace be upon him. Peace be upon him. Thank you so much. And and I just find it fascinating about your, your interest in, in military strategy and um, where that first manifested for you. I mean, you mentioned your classical academia. I'm also a, an undergraduate of, of classical studies, actually. And, and so I was really intrigued by uh, what you said about, you know, Aeschylus and, you know, and Homer, of course. And mm, I know you've, mm. you've read the Odyssey many times. And the Iliad is about mm. warfare. So the, the ancient Greek uh, epic poem by, by Homer. And you taught military history throughout the centuries and, you know, from you know, Alexander the Great to the Balkan Wars. And, of course, there are differences in strategy, but I'm really interested in, in your kind of interest in, in all of this and, and how you, you think it all comes together. Yeah, I, you know, it, 
you might think, therefore, that I have some kind of affection for war because I've made the study of war my career. But in fact, I, I tend to sit on the kind of pacifistic end of the scale in that I think war sometimes is necessary, but very seldom. And you have to have a very clear concept of what justice is. And you go to war for the right reasons, and then you have to fight it super cleanly. But why I've always been fascinated by war, I guess, is because it's the most enduring, pervasive human activity. The very first human records that we have, written records, are of two things, taxation and war. And so if you look at the stele of ancient Babylon or the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt, um, or if you read, as you say, Homer, everything is to do with the human condition. And at the heart of that is the fact that humans don't seem to get on very well. And when they don't get on very well, they tend to use war as their way forward. It bothers me that humans are inherently kind of violent. So trying to make sense of that um, has been kind of like a lifelong passion, if you like. The war itself is a, is a wretched thing. After all, if you think about murder on an individual basis, it's the worst sin that a human can do, um, socially anyway, amongst other humans. And yet war is kind of like a, an organized form of murder, isn't it? And yet there's a different moral code that somehow makes it different. And understanding the difference is quite fascinating to me. For example, if I take a knife into a bank and stab a, uh, someone waiting in the line with the knife, I'll be called a murderer or a terrorist or something. If, on the other hand, I take the same knife and I crawl across the space between my trench and the enemy's trench and jump down on someone and kill them with that knife, I'll get a medal. And so understanding that philosophical difference, I guess, has been something that, that drives me on. Um, and certainly when we look at Islam, the Islamic concept of war is the most fascinating and perhaps misunderstood thing to study. And the approach that you have to your latest publication with Claritas, the leadership of Muhammad, the uh, historical reconstruction, the approach you have is, is different to other books on, on leadership. And you mentioned that other Muslim writers say it was the Prophet Muhammad's qualities of being you know, devout and honest and compassionate. In other words, his moral goodness that made him a great leader. Well, what do you believe made him an effective leader? Yeah, I think that's an unsustainable argument. We can't simply continue to claim that just because Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was a very good man and a successful leader, that he was a successful leader because he was a very good man. And, and why I say that it's unsustainable is simply that history reveals many deeply flawed, corrupt, and even sometimes wickedly cruel people um, who have been very successful leaders. If you think about Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, um, Emperor Napoleon, Stalin, Mao Zedong, these were people that anyone would define as successful leaders. Certainly, they were able to kind of imprint their vision upon their era or their people, um, attain their goals, and yet they were bad people. Likewise, we have plenty of good people in history that aren't good leaders. And even among the prophets, for example, if you think about Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, in every worldly sense, he wasn't a great leader. He was never able to amass a, a following of more than a small cluster of disciples. 
and his ministry ended in, at least if we believe the Gospels, in his death. So we can't simply say that someone who is morally superior is going to also excel in leadership. The two things are completely disconnected. And so what I wanted to do with this book was to look instead and see if there's a different type of logic. We can't simply say that all successful leaders are good men or good women. Muhammad was a good man, therefore he was a successful leader. Because he was a good man, that logic just doesn't follow. So was he a good leader? And as a Muslim, of course, I, I, I love Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, as much as anybody. And my my tendency would be to see excellence in everything he does. That's how we are as Muslims. We we esteem him. But if all I do is write a book saying, as a Muslim, Muhammad was a great man because he was our great prophet, and he was a great leader because he was our great prophet, then my book would be of no value, for example, to a non-Muslim who wouldn't be able to access that devotion and love that I'm feeling. And they would say, well, so what? And so what I tried to do was step back and say, look, let's look at the evidence and simply say, what did Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, think he was doing? How did he think the best way to achieve his goals would be? How did he interact with people? What were his interpersonal skills? How was he able to convince people that his vision of a better future would have something in it for them? Because after all, that's why we follow leaders, because of what's essentially in it for us. And so I just set myself a task of looking um, at the earliest Arabic sources. And here's where I have to kind of take a slight detour in the conversation to explain that the Sarah of the Prophet, the story of the Prophet's life, has changed a lot over the last 1,400 years. The first sources have a portrayal of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, that's quite different to say if you read a 20th century Islamic biography, like the very popular ones, the, the sealed nectar. Um, the, the earliest Arabic sources had a kind of a warts and all approach to the prophet. They put everything in, even if it didn't reflect positively in today's terms um, on him, they kept it and, and they kept it so that readers could make up their own mind. Today, we don't do that when we write about leaders. We tend to sanitize our presentation. We take out all the bad stuff and just keep in all the good stuff. So I wanted to see if I went back to the earliest Arabic sources, Ibn Hisham and Al-Waqidi and Ibn Sa'ad in particular, Al-Tabari, whether I could reconstruct the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, say something meaningful about his leadership based on that evidence and only on that evidence. So that was kind of the, the approach I took. And, and in your many roles, you, you've also given strategy advice to military and political leaders. And have you ever drawn on the prophetic example when giving that advice? Well, again, that's a hard question. You, you know, if we think about the prophet, peace be upon him, as a strategist, his context was so very different to the world today that I'd, I'd be a bit nervous about directly drawing on, on examples from his life. But there are a set of things I think he did that are virtually timeless. And, and some of them he inherited from the environment he was raised in, you know, as a, as a son of the Quraysh tribe and 
7th century Arabia, he saw the leaders around him that were any good were consultative, that they believed in Shura. And so when he became a leader himself after the, the Hijra to, to Yathrib, he adopted that very similar consultative style of leadership. In fact, he pushed it to rather unusual levels of consultation and it brought him great results. Before every battle, he wouldn't say, this is what I'm going to do, I'm the leader, follow me, chaps. He would say, teach me, tell me, what should I do? And people from all levels of society to the most humble follower would say, oh, prophet, I think this might work. And he would listen and listen to a whole range of voices before he would then take a decision. And sometimes we find, in fact, that he listened not to his older, more central central group of friends, the ones that would then go on, for example, to be caliphs themselves, but to youngsters, sometimes teenagers, sometimes people in their early 20s, sometimes people who had a good idea and perhaps were hesitant about putting it forward, but he welcomed that and listened and sometimes followed that advice. So I think there are things about the Prophet, peace be upon him, that leaders can draw upon today um, that, that work in, as well today as they did 1,400 years ago. Mm. And it is the Prophet's vision that is just so intriguing. And, and probably one of my particular highlights from the Prophet's life was his establishing of the constitution of Medina. And could you just explain to us what that agreement was exactly and, and how it demonstrated the Prophet's vision? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. A lot of non-Muslim scholars are quite intrigued by the constitution of Medina, as it's called, or the Pact of Medina, Dustur al-Medina in Arabic. What effectively happened is the, the, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was and his group of closest companions were driven out of Mecca and they made the journey to Medina, where the Prophet had been offered a role as a kind of a mediator among the five tribes that existed there, the, the two non-Jewish tribes in particular, the Aus and the Khazraj. But there were three Jewish tribes in Medina as well. And the Prophet knew that his ability to function as a leader depended on his ability to create a sense of unity among all the people. And so he extended the hand of friendship to the Jews as well as to the non-Jewish Arabs, because they were all Arabs. Even the Jews there were Arabs. They weren't a different ethnic community. They were just a different religious confession. And, and so he seems to have reached an agreement with all of the tribes of Medina that he would act as a kind of a, a conciliatory agent for unity amongst them, um, that they would all function as what's called an ummah wahada, a single ummah, a single community, which, according to the document itself, included the Jews, as well as the non-Jewish Medinans. And, you know, it really is an act of, of tremendous tolerance uh, and inclusion. And we often have a very negative view of the Jews of Medina, um, because of what we know later happened. But certainly upon arrival there as a moderator, this was a kind of a masterpiece of diplomacy. And it shows again the vision that the Prophet, peace be upon him, had for humanity, which is that people should form 
communion together. They should come together as a kind of a single whole and and not be divided by religious confession. And in that sense, it wasn't really needed anyway. There were differences of opinion between Christians, Jews, and the followers of Muhammad, peace be upon him, in terms of what we might now call theology or doctrine, creed. But the prophet, peace be upon him, had the broad view that a monotheist is a monotheist. A monotheist is a muhman, a believer. And so he felt, these are people I can work with. And so that kind of sense that I can work with the Jews of Medina sits very much at the heart of that written document. And that document, uh, we find copies of it in um, in Ibn Hisham and Tabari in particular. It's the most fascinating historical document and tells us an awful lot about the vision of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Thank you so much. It really is a, a brilliant book, uh, your book on the, the leadership of, of Muhammad. And it's, you know, it's intriguing all the way through. And, and and I know you've written many books and beyond your academia, your authorship also broadly extends to poetry and fiction. Is there any interplay or intellectual exchange between your different genres that you focus on and these different roles? Well, you know, it's hard to say. I, I... I just feel I have something in me that I need to, to kind of get out, a set of ideas or a set of words or, a, you know, sometimes it's a pain in my heart about the state of the world. And so sometimes nonfiction, writing true accounts of politics or warfare, isn't suitable for getting those feelings out. Um, the world is a bit of a mess. And sometimes the Islamic Ummah are contributing to harm in the world through, for example, misunderstood concepts of jihad or, you know, the worst of things like terrorism. And that really grieves me that such things are happening in the name of our God and our prophet, peace be upon him. And so it's hard for me to express that in a nonfiction book, but it's easy through poetry to express my disgust at terrorism, my disgust at the fact that people would pervert such beautiful teachings and use them for, for wicked ends. So it's kind of like a cathartic creativity or a creative <laughs> catharsis. I don't know which way around I, that would be. I, I think so. I mean, I also write poetry about my own journey. You know, I mean, yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a very strange thing, I think, to come to Islam after decades, I mean, I was nearly 40 when I became a, a Muslim. And, you know, I, I, I have friends and colleagues like Hamza Yusuf and Abdul Hakim Murad who became Muslims when they were 18 or 19. And I've often felt some kind of sense that they had it easier than me. Um, you know, they were able to learn over a, a kind of a gradual period and, and find their way Islamically over decades and as a scholar and as a person, I had to do that almost immediately as a, as a kind of a middle-aged man. And, and so some of my poetry, in fact, deals with that difficulty of, of learning a new religion and trying to master it and, and make sense of it. And, and that process involves a lot of unlearning, of course. You know, you, set, you have your first 35 or more years with a whole set of philosophical and religious views and a, and a kind of a worldview that you then have to unlearn before you can start learning something different. Um, and so I guess a lot of my poetry deals with those experiences um, of coming to Islam and, and trying to make sense of it. 
and in your your poetry with that has been published with with Claritas. I mean, it's entitled Pain and Passing, and it's about your processing of of grief. Um, and this was deeply intimate for you. Um, it was about your, your your wife who who very tragically passed away from a very painful experience, suffering from cancer. You know, and may God give her paradise. You know, you you even say her death caused poetry to pour from you. Yeah, so why why do you feel like pain and loss gives birth to so much expression? Well, you know, um, it was the worst time of my life in, 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 in every way. You know, I'd been married to the same lady for three decades, and she developed a terrible cancer um, and died in, in, in pain, and a very painful death, not an easy death at all. And, you know, we, we don't have the kind of intellectual or philosophical tools for for really making sense of that. And Islam is no better at explaining why a, a just God, a compassionate and merciful God, uses suffering as a cleansing or as an agency of, of improvement in people's life, if that's what it is. Um, it's no better at that than, than, than the Christian philosophers are or the Jewish philosophers. Pain is hard to explain. After all, God can teach us lessons without inflicting a cancer on a person or letting them suffer from it, if that's a better way of putting it. Why do that to someone? And we have all sorts of explanations that we've cooked up. We base them on very little evidence from Quran or from the the Hadith or from the Sirah about, well, this is a test. This is a challenge. Well, this is a punishment. And they're the three words that we always throw out to explain why the God we call the most merciful and the most compassionate allows things like a cancer to ravage somebody's body. A good person. My wife wasn't a great sinner. She was perhaps one of the very best people I'd ever met. And yet cancer stripped her to the bone and inflicted tremendous physical agony. And, and trying to understand that while I'm observing it, um, and this is someone that I had known and loved for three decades, um, created a great sense of questioning within me. And as I mentioned, you know, our human explanations are entirely inadequate. Even the greatest of all the medieval Islamic scholars haven't adequately been able to explain that. And so I felt that sense of kind of desperation of wanting to know why the God that I pray to five times a day can allow such a thing. And I hope that doesn't sound like a moment where my faith was weak. Um, At no point, I think, in my Islamic walk have I felt a sense that my faith is weak. But it was a sense of total ignorance about the purpose of God, you know, why God does some things. And perhaps it's arrogant to even think that we have a right to know why. But I'm a scholar, and I do want to know why things happen. And at that time, I had no answers. And so that book of poetry is is the way that my heart and, and my mind tried to make sense of it all. And, and, the, and the poetry, seriously, it, it is just so, it's so moving. It, is, it moved me to tears, actually. And, and they are as devastating as they are moving and, and resonant. And, and you're so deeply um, honest uh, in your poems. And you talk about the difficulty of acceptance, which is something I think... <laughs> everyone can connect with that kind of chaos of being in the, in the trials of witnessing someone you love um, in pain and then leave you. you know, so do you, do you believe that that rawness is also 
a form of, of reconciling with our faith? Yeah, I, I don't know that I've ever been able to answer those questions. And I suspect I, I, I will never be able to. But the book was really my, the kind of the outpouring of my, my thoughts and my pain um, about what I'd seen happen. And, you know, I, I, I've read a lot of Christian theology about pain and suffering. I've read a lot of Jewish philosophy and, of course, a lot of Islamic philosophy about pain and suffering. And we, we aren't able, actually, to, to understand the mind of God. We, we want to. We want to know why God allows war, why God allows injustice. Um, why would a compassionate and just and merciful God, you know, 113 out of the 114 surahs of the Quran start with the Bismillah. And, and, and so we do know that God is compassionate, that God is most merciful. So how come? And it's that sense of wanting to know. It's not really a demand for an answer. We don't have the right to demand anything of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but it's wanting to know um, that that kind of sits in my mind so powerfully. I didn't write the book essentially as, as catharsis, as, as a kind of a healing process, but undoubtedly it had that effect. Um, I was able to get out a lot of the rawness and a lot of the pain um, that I was feeling. And, and you know, I, I felt it was a, a way of, of me putting in words not only what I feel, but what I see a lot of other people feel, um, good religious people, devout people, people that trust Allah entirely. They still suffer the pain of, of not knowing why some things happen. And that kind of sentiment, um, it still sits with me. But I don't just write sad things. I also write, I hope, some happy things. And uh, some of the the fiction I write, I like to write fiction, yeah. I hope is kind of a, is a happy way of getting out some of the things that also intrigue me. I wrote a book for Claritas, uh, a book of short stories, Islamic short stories. And that created kind of a different challenge for me in a way, because in Islam, we have a, a reverence for the great personages of our, of our history, of mm -hmm. the prophet himself, of course, peace be upon him, but also those around him and the other prophets through history and the great Muslim intellectuals and thinkers and, and, and the great Islamic warriors and heroes. And, and, and I was intrigued by the kind of space that exists around that reverence we have to see if I could plug into that some kind of fiction that might flesh out the gaps that we have in our knowledge. But I wanted to stay faithful to the sources and I wanted to stay within the kind of the, the realm of, of freedom that I had to be creative and make up something about mm -hmm. someone who is a real historical Islamic person. And, and so that, that itself is quite a challenge. And, and you're talking, of course, about The Savage, um, the, the collection of short Islamic fictional stories. And, and right. the historical fiction is just so, it's so clever and brilliant. And, I, and, and it's almost like people are kind of guessing or, you know, how good they are at their seerah, I suppose, like who this person is. So in the very first one, um, which is entitled The Conquest, it, you know, it gave me goosebumps because I, I, I'm piecing together who this this person is in seventh century Arabia, um, this woman who you're inhabiting, and and it's so intriguing because it gives this 
inside psychological perspective, one that we never see. But do you do you feel like this sense of a responsibility or even, you know, do you have to consider boundaries when it comes to your fictional writing because it inhabits these spaces around our prophets and around the Sahaba? The yeah, companions. you're absolutely right. You know, when I first became a, a Muslim, one of the things actually that sat at the heart of my decision was reading the account of the conquest of Mecca uh, in the year 630 by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And he, uh, as is well known, he came into the city of Mecca and amassed all of the people together, the citizens, several thousand men and women on different sides. And and then he spoke to each and, and told them what was required of them. And Amongst the women was this woman, Hind Binti Utba, who heckled him as he spoke. And I thought the audacity of that woman. This is a woman who had, according to the, the Sarah literature, chewed on the liver of the prophet's uncle during the battle. And a death sentence had been imposed upon her, a just death sentence. And, and yet here she was, still unrepentant at that stage, and heckling the prophet, peace be upon him. Every time he started to give the women some advice on how to live in harmony with uh, the new way of, of, of seeing the world, she would call out something. And the sources are clear that that's what happened. And so I was intrigued by that and tried to create a kind of a backstory um, for that. But as to what would motivate her, you know, she's hated this man. She's rejected his prophethood. She's cast the worst accusations at him and committed this vulgar act of mutilation on the battlefield. And then she has the audacity to heckle him while he speaks. And and I, I was just struck by that and struck by the prophet's calmness with her and tolerance and forgiveness. And indeed, he forgave her as he forgave um, everyone on that day. And And... That made a, a huge impact on me when I, I first read that um, in in the Sarah literature, and so I wanted to create a kind of a fictional reimagining of of that day. The challenge, of course, is that the sources are very specific about what she said and what Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, and so I had to sit that at the heart of my narrative and leave that entirely unchanged and unimagined. But I still felt there was freedom to kind of work with her backstory as to how she she came to be uh, there and, and still bitter on that day. The decision to walk from her home, feeling this anger that her city is now being taken over by this man that she's hated so much. I wanted to kind of put myself... Uh, strange thing, I guess, for someone, a male from the 21st century to put yourself into the mind of a 7th century woman. But I wanted to do that and wanted to think, what must she have been thinking? And I kind of hope the story works. Oh, it was, yeah, it was, I was, it was brilliant. I was absolutely hooked. And it was just so incredible to read about her story from that perspective, like, like literally from her point of view. So that was, that was wonderful. And your fictional collection, The Savage, it, it encompasses also modern day commentary on hard hitting issues, not only historical fiction. So you talk about things like extremism and, and abuse within Muslim communities. 
which is really intriguing. Uh, were these very challenging for you to write about creatively? Well, well yeah. I mean, one of the things I, I felt, I guess, um, living in Britain um, and attending a, a local mosque where, was that the, the, the role of culture, the influence of the kind of the South Asian heritage of some of the people in my mosque had, had been sort of passed off as, as Islam. And, and I saw that with a hardness towards, for example, the teaching of Quran. Quran is the most beautiful book, and it's something that we should teach our children to love. And, and yet I knew from firsthand experience of children in my community who were being hit when they mispronounced Quran, hit with a stick, and worse. And, and that just seemed so desperately wrong to me. How can you teach someone love for something when when you hit them with a stick, when they make a mistake? This is a blessed book, and we should teach it with love and teach people to love it. And so I wanted to create a story about a situation that I knew, but kind of make it fictional. I fictionalized something that I knew from experience. Um, and, and terrorism, you know. It's no good us just turning a blind eye to what's happening and saying, oh, but they're not really Muslims. You, you know, how, how, who can say they're not really Muslims? If somebody says that they believe in the one true God and that Muhammad is his final prophet, they're a Muslim. Even if they then go on to do an act of wickedness. And the wickedness in the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and and uh, blessed Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, really hurts me. It's damaging the reputation of Islam in the world, undoubtedly. And we have to do more to purge it out. And and so, you know, the things that I've seen and the things that I've experienced and some of the things that people have said and done around me have hurt me as a, as someone who's come into that community from outside. And so I wanted to write about those in a kind of a fictionalized way as well. So, so you know, I, I've written poetry and I've written fiction um, about the kind of the, the horror of seeing our beautiful religion so misrepresented by these people. So this is, I mean, yeah, this is what you hope to offer then. Or perhaps I should say, what do you hope to offer both to yourself and to others via your poetry and your fiction and all your works? Um, I guess in terms of nonfiction, I want to feel like I'm using the skills that Allah has given me to, to say something that might represent the history of, of Islam and especially the story of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, truthfully, accurately an evidence-based presentation of, of such things. You know, there's a lot of misrepresentation by non-Muslims about our holy prophet, peace be upon him. And so I kind of see it as a valuable role that I can play as a historian um, who knows the, the sources quite intimately to write something that is evidence-based and, and accurate. In terms of non-fiction, in terms of fiction and poetry, um, I... I I don't know. I, I, I kind of write it as much for myself as I as I do for any potential reader. But even when I imagine someone reading my poetry or my fiction, I kind of hope that they will find a truth in it. 
and hope that they will find a challenge in it. And and I'm sure that you will continue to do so because I'm you must have many projects, books um, also coming out from you because I feel like you're a bit of a uh, a well that just keeps giving. So I'm sure there's more to come. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I, I I'm getting old, and and undoubtedly I'm in the kind of final I don't know quarter of my life or something around there. Um, but I haven't slowed down yet, and I still feel I've got things inside I, I, I want to write. At the moment, I'm working on the, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him's relationship with the Bedouins, um, which is entirely mischaracterized, and it's the most fascinating thing to write about. And, and I hope that, you know, in my own humble way, if I write something decent, and somebody reads it, it might make them think, oh gosh, I, I never knew that, or oh, I always thought something different, and, and this has changed my mind. Um, so I, I hope I've still got a few good books left in me. Inshallah. Well, yeah, inshallah. Well, we thank you so much for, for sharing all of that with us, and uh, we wish you all the best with, with everything that is to come, inshallah. Thank you, Professor Joel Hayward. It's my great ple- pleasure. Thank you so much. Wa alaikum salam I've been your host, Ramona Ali. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe. And you can explore more works at www.claritasbooks.com.